Grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all of our sin. I ask you to open up to the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians in chapter 2 this morning. Martin Luther was 37 years old when he stood on trial at the Diet of Worms and declared that he must follow conscience rather than counsels. And his conscience was bound to the Word of God. He had become convinced that Scripture is the highest authority and that Scripture teaches a message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. He had become convinced that Jesus is our prophet, our priest, our king, the only mediator between God and man, and that human priests and popes have no place in the Christian life. And this position meant that he would be found guilty of the charge of heresy. And he could now expect at any point to be arrested, to be taken to Rome, and possibly even killed. Somebody asked me last Sunday after the sermon, after Luther took that climactic stand and you know, said, God help me, what happened to him? Well, that's what everybody wanted to know. Because after the trial, Luther disappeared. Nobody could find him. Nobody could figure out what had happened to him. Uh, Knowing that he was in grave danger from the authorities, but intent on continuing his life as normal and just trusting God, Luther had gotten in his wagon to begin the trek home to Wittenberg. Well, not long after getting onto the road, a group of armed horsemen attacked him, and they cursed at him, and they knocked him to the ground, and they abducted him. And then over the coming weeks, some of Luther's friends started receiving letters. Uh, They were addressed from the wilderness, or from the Isle of Patmos, which if you'll remember is the island where the Apostle John was exiled. It turns out that Frederick the Wise, the prince over Luther's region of Germany, had decided to protect him secretly. And so without telling Luther what he was up to, he had some of his men abduct Luther and put on the whole show of cursing and threatening and and treating Luther roughly so that anyone who saw wouldn't know what was really going on. Luther was brought to Wartburg Castle, and he was forbidden to leave. He was forbidden to tell anyone who he was or where he was. In the castle, it was only him, a warden, and two servant boys. And he was told that while there, he needed to dress like a knight. He needed to grow out his beard, and he took a new name, Junker George, which literally means Knight George. This was all under the order of Frederick the Wise. Luther had no choice in the matter, and it was for his protection. But Luther went almost crazy. He could not stand being cooped up in that castle. There was so much he wanted to be doing, and he hated idleness. 
He said, I can tell you that in this idle solitude, there are a thousand battles with Satan. And so he gave himself to whatever work he could find to do. He was only in the castle for ten months. But in that time, he wrote twelve books. And he translated the entire New Testament into the German language. Uh, the German New Testament that he translated there become one of, became one of the most important parts of Luther's legacy. Because now the regular people could have the Bible in a language that they could understand. Uh, he continued to work on that translation even after he left the castle, eventually finishing the Old Testament. So that he was able to publish an entire German Bible. Over 100,000 copies were printed and sold in a manner of 40 years. That was an absolutely astronomical number for those times. And as Germany became Protestant, Luther's translation was soon found in almost every Protestant home. So one opponent of Martin Luther said this, He said, Luther's New Testament was so much multiplied and spread by printers that even tailors and shoemakers, yea, even women and ignorant persons who had accepted this new Lutheran gospel and could read a little German, studied it with the greatest avidity as all the fountain of truth. Some even committed it to memory and carried it about in their heart. In a few months, such people deemed themselves so learned that they were not ashamed to dispute about faith and the gospel, not only with Catholic laymen, but even with priests and with monks and doctors of divinity. Well, Luther's German translation had a similar effect on the German language that the King James Version had on the English language. And his translation of the Bible remains popular even in Germany today. So while Luther was cooped up in this castle at Wartburg and he's writing books and he's translating the Bible, things are moving quite along back home in Wittenberg. Uh, Luther had a right-hand man. His name was Philip Melanchthon. And he was continuing to teach the people the Bible in Luther's stead. So just a few years earlier, Wittenberg had been famous for its indulgences where people could receive forgiveness for all their sins if they paid the price and viewed the relics on All Saints Day, November 1st. And we talked about Frederick the Wise and how he had created this huge uh, uh, collection of relics, over 17,000 bones of supposed saints and apostles. Thousands of German pilgrims would come to the city in order to have their sins forgiven. Well, now it's only six years later. But even the preacher who announced the indulgences, told the crowd that they were rubbish. Uh, When he announced the new relics that had been added to the collection, the crowd booed. It was the last year that Wittenberg ever sold indulgences. Instead, people were beginning to embrace the freedom that they were finding in the Scriptures. The Catholic Church had said that priests and monks and nuns should not marry... But as people began looking through their New Testaments, they couldn't find that prohibition anywhere in its pages. Luther had pointed out that most priests needed and had housekeepers, which were almost always women. And when these single men and single women were put in the same house together, and then were told they were not allowed to marry, it was like putting fire beside straw 
Honestly, many of the priests openly were living with with live-in girlfriends, and everyone knew it. Luther called for a new honoring of marriage. And so in Wittenberg, suddenly the priests started getting married, and the monks started getting married, and the nuns started getting married, and often the monks and the nuns were marrying each other. In the castle church, the images and the religious icons were smashed. The Bible says to worship God through His Word, not through visual images. And since all Christians are priests, the Lord's Supper, remember last week we talked about how the wine was only given to the priests? Well, that was done away with. All believers were now to consider themselves priests. And at the Lord's table, the liturgy was now being spoken in German so that the people could actually understand it. So all of these radical changes were happening there in Wittenberg. And Luther stuck many miles away, sitting in his castle as Junker George. He finally determined he must get back to his city, whatever the risk. No matter how dangerous it might be for him. And this became more important as the people of Wittenberg began to turn towards violence. To spread the Reformation. According to Roland Bainton, whose book I'm using to put together these introductions, the day before Luther returned to Wittenberg, there was a riot in the city. He says students and town folks with knives under their cloaks invaded the parish church. They snatched the mass books from the altar and they drove out the priests. Stones were thrown against those who were saying private devotions to the Virgin Mary. As Luther then made his way to Wittenberg, his conversations with passerbys gave him the sense that there was a revolution in the making, but it was a potentially violent revolution, and he would have none of it. He believed that the word of God was the Christian's weapon for changing hearts and minds and not the sword. And so he told his followers, preach, pray, but do not fight. As the Reformation began to take hold of Germany, Luther's security increased and he became freer to preach, freer to write, and to minister to the people of Wittenberg. Next week I'll share a little more about what that meant. But in September of 1524, a man named Erasmus published a book entitled The Diatribe Concerning Free Will. Now, Erasmus is still remembered as a very famous philosopher and thinker. And though Luther had never met Erasmus, uh, they had admired each other from a distance. They even considered each other friends and they had exchanged letters. So when Luther read this book by Erasmus, it shook him deeply. Because he believed that Erasmus was not only wrong, but dangerously wrong. And so at 42 years old... Luther published what he called his most important book. He said that this book got to the very heart of the church and the very heart of the Reformation. Uh, Later, B.B. Warfield would call this book the Manifesto of the Protestant Reformation. And it was his book called The Bondage of the Will. Put simply, think with me for a minute, okay? Erasmus had taught that man must contribute in some way to his own salvation. 
Erasmus agreed with a lot of what Luther was saying. He said maybe Luther's right about all of these errors in the Catholic Church. And maybe Luther's right about some of these issues of indulgences and relics and and all of that. But Erasmus said ultimately man has to do something. Man has to contribute in some way to his own salvation. Otherwise, why would God save one sinner and not another? Why does one person go to heaven while another person goes to hell? And Erasmus says it must be God responding in some way to what one man has done and another has not. So if it's not indulgences, it must be something. At root, it was the exact same argument that we often hear today. That man must choose God of his own free will. And that when the Bible says that God chooses who will be saved, what that really means is that God looks into the future, sees who will choose him, and then he chooses them on the basis of them having chosen him. Put simply, God chooses them because, he, because they chose him first. Luther said that this is really what the whole Reformation was about. Are we made right with God by anything that we do? Or is our salvation entirely a work of God's grace? Luther was passionate that God alone should receive all the glory for any sinner who was saved. Yes, people really do choose to believe on Christ. But Luther said even that faith is ultimately a gift from God that he gives to those whom he chooses. Listen to Luther. This is his words. He said, It is then fundamentally necessary and wholesome for Christians to know. So here's something he says is good for Christians to know. That God foreknows nothing contingently, but he foresees, purposes, and does all things according to his own immutable, eternal, and infallible will. In other words, God does nothing contingent on what other people do. God's plans are not sitting here waiting to see what you do, and then he adjusts his plans and acts. Rather, that God does absolutely everything according to his own immutable, that means unchangeable, eternal and infallible will. Luther said, this bombshell knocks free will flat and utterly shatters it so that those who want to assert it must either deny my bombshell or pretend not to notice it or find some way of dodging it. Luther said, listen carefully, If any man ascribes anything of salvation, even the very least thing, to the free will of man, he knows nothing of grace and he has not learned Jesus Christ rightly. That's some pretty strong words. That's a a powerful statement. It's strong language. And so here's my question. Luther said that's the heart of what the whole Reformation was about. Was he right? Was he right on that question? To make it personal, if you're here and you're a Christian, did you contribute anything of your own free will to your salvation? Or was it entirely the work of God? 
How did you come to believe in Jesus? If you're a Christian this morning, if you've got faith in your heart, where did that faith come from? We're going to look at Ephesians 2. We're going to look at some verses here in this chapter. And from these verses, I want to mention two wrong answers to our question and then one right answer. Two wrong answers and then one right answer. So the question is, how did you come to faith if you're a Christian? And the first wrong answer is this one. You did it. You did it. Uh, That's completely wrong. Of all the billions of people in this world, you are one of the minority that has real faith in Christ. What made the difference? Would we dare say that what made the difference was us? That we were smarter than other people? That we were wiser than other people. You know, other people hear the gospel, but they're just not smart enough to understand it, so they don't believe. But I was smart enough to understand it, and that's why I'm saved. Or, other people heard the gospel, but you know, they were just so in love with those sins that they, that they were falling for, that they just never could believe it. But you know, I didn't have any strong sins in my life, and so I wasn't being held captive, and, and I could follow Jesus. Would we dare to talk that way? That the reason for our salvation lies in us. Friends, the Bible is clear on this point. If believing on Jesus Christ was up to us in our natural state, we would never believe. So look with me at how the Bible describes who we were before we were saved. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. And this is the very word of God. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Mount Hermon, is there anything in those verses that gives any impression that we, in that state, would ever have chosen to believe on Jesus? Paul says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What does that even mean? It doesn't mean we were physically dead, of course. We were walking around just fine. When we were non-Christians, we still got out of bed in the morning and we ate our cereal and we brushed our teeth and we lived our lives. And yet Paul says, you were dead. So what kind of deadness was this? It was a spiritual deadness. It was a deadness to God. We were so ensnared by our trespasses and sins We were so caught up in our pride and self-centeredness, our worldliness, our fleshly desires, that God was a threat to everything we really loved. We didn't love Him. 
Not the holy, holy, holy God of the Bible with all of his commands and his claim to authority over our lives. No, we didn't want that God. We hated that God. We wanted nothing to do with that God. We were dead to him. Do you think a person in that state, with those feelings and that attitude, chooses freely on his own to surrender and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul says that we were following the course of this world and that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So church, back when you were following the course of this world, when you were an unbeliever, was the world rushing towards faith in Jesus? Was that the direction it was going? Is that the direction our world is heading? When we look at our culture and our society, is it turning from sins? Is it, is it pushing us towards faith in Jesus? Or must we not say that when we followed the course of the world, it was taking us the opposite direction? Or what about when we look at the devil? Because the devil is the prince of the power of the air that Paul is talking about. And he says we once followed him. That when we were unbelievers, we didn't know it, but we were following the devil. Let me ask you a question. Was he leading you to faith in Jesus? Is that the direction the devil was taking you? No. So if we were following the devil, and the Bible is clear that we were, does it make any sense to say that we, in that devil-following state, in that world-following state, turned on our own and said, I'm going to follow Jesus? A person in and of themselves can no more believe on Jesus as they can sprout wings and fly to Neptune. It is an impossibility. It is a moral impossibility. The way Paul describes it elsewhere is that we are so darkened in our minds, so darkened in our wills and understanding that if left to ourselves, we will never turn to Jesus on our own. Not truly. Trusting in Jesus is a good act. Trusting in Jesus is the most ultimately good act you can ever perform. What Thomas just did here this morning, drawing that line in the, stand, in the sand, saying, I will follow Jesus no matter where he leads me. That is a good act. It is a great act. Romans 3 says there are none who do good. No, not one. So how did Thomas, how did any of us come to be able to do that? John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Mount Hermon, here's the first wrong answer to how you came to be a saved person. I did it. No. That will not stand up to the light of Scripture. But then there's another wrong answer, a second wrong answer, and this was the view of Erasmus. Uh, Erasmus completely agreed with what I just said. He completely agreed, no, 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 it, it, it must be of God, it must be God's grace, it must be God working, but his view was, I did it with the Spirit's help. And this is the view of many in our day, I did it with the Spirit's help. 
This view says, you're right, I could never have believed in Jesus on my own, but the Spirit helped me, and then I did it. And this view says that the Spirit did part of the work, and then I did the other part. So maybe the Holy Spirit did 10%, and I did the other 90. Maybe it was 50-50. Maybe the Spirit did 99.9% of the work, and I just did my my 0.1%, but I did it, and that's why I'm saved, and other people are not. Because the Spirit works in other people's lives, and he, He does a lot of things for them, and some of them don't get saved. What's the difference? And, and Erasmus said, it has to be something in us. It must be that that person didn't do his 0.1%, and I did my 0.1%. This is a view of salvation called synergism. Everybody say synergism. Companies talk a lot today about synergy, right? Multiple people collaborating together, working together to make good things happen for the company. Synergism is good in business, I think. The synergistic view of salvation is dead wrong. The synergistic view of salvation says God does his part, we do ours, and together we bring about saving faith in Jesus. Let me ask you another question. Exactly what percentage of work can a dead person do? Uh, suppose, suppose you decided to write a paper with a dead person. And you decide you're going to write the entire paper. You're just going to leave the last sentence for the dead person to complete. Under those conditions, will your paper ever be finished? Of course not. Because even if all that is required is 1% of the work, a dead person cannot do it. And similarly, if the Spirit does 99% of the work in giving you saving faith, but you must somehow pull from your spiritually dead soul 1%, you'll never be able to do it. And then there's the other problem with this answer. This is the one that really got Luther going. If you do in and of yourself any part of the work of creating faith in Christ, then to that degree, you get a share in the glory. Will you say, yes, I am saved, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. God did 99% of the work, and he gets 99% of the glory of I salvation, and I get 1%. You think God's going to let you have that 1%? Do you think God shares his glory with anyone? Uh, Does God allow there to be any glory at all that does not originate with him and ultimately redound back to him? In heaven, you and I will have glory, but it will be his glory in us. To say that you played some part in creating saving faith in your heart is to say that there's a glory that's not God's at all. There's a glory that is your own, and that is dangerous talk. And it's dangerous because our God is the God who said this in Isaiah concerning the salvation of his people. He said, talking about salvation, 
For my own sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. The banner over your salvation is God saying, I have a purpose. For my own sake, for my own sake I save you. I do it. My glory I will not give to another. I wonder when Paul was traveling down the Damascus road and he's intent on capturing and and imprisoning followers of Christ. What percentage do you think he contributed to the work of his conversion? This was not a man cooperating with the Holy Spirit. This was not a man who was working with the Holy Spirit in order to bring about his salvation. Just the opposite. Paul hated Christ. Paul hated the gospel. He had stood there watching as Stephen was stoned. Yet all at once, Christ took hold of Paul. And through the Spirit, he told him, it is hard to kick against the goads. Meaning, Paul, you can kick against this all you want. I am stronger than you. I have set my love on you. And I will have your heart. You are mine. Paul says in Romans 4 verse 16 that the whole reason that God made salvation depend on faith is so that it would be by his grace and completely his work. So here's the right answer. From first to last, God is the giver of our faith. From first to last, God is the giver of our faith. He does 100% of the work. Look down at verses 8 and 9. I bet you know them by heart. I hope you do. But let's see them. Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when we talk about the Reformation, we think about these slogans, right? Faith alone, grace alone, glory to God alone. Do you see how those three particular slogans come together in these two verses? We must be saved through faith in Jesus, Paul says. You have been saved through faith, not a result of works. That's faith alone. But where does faith come from? Paul says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's grace alone. And what's the point of it all? So that no one may boast. So that the glory will go to God alone. Mount Hermon, we must not be synergists. We must be monergists. Everybody say monergist. All right, mon, M-O-N, meaning one. We believe our salvation is the work of one, and we're not that one. We give all glory to God and God alone. This is all over the Bible. This is why Luther said that he felt like the Bible had just broken open for him when he began to see these things. 
Take Romans 8, verse 1, for example, probably my favorite verse of Scripture. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, yes, but only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Okay, Paul, how do I get to be one of those people that are in Christ Jesus and therefore have no condemnation? How do I get to be in Christ Jesus? Verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Paul says it's the spirit that makes all the difference. The spirit of life, the spirit who gives life, the spirit who comes upon a sinner and is dead in sin and says, arise! And that spiritually dead soul comes alive with faith. Jesus told Nicodemus that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. How does this happen? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, we who are born with wills enslaved to sin suddenly find those chains broken. Christians are those people whose wills have been set free from sin. We once could not, we once would not trust Jesus, we once would not love Jesus, but because of the Spirit, we now do so freely. We now do so eagerly. Our hearts have been won by the love of Christ. It is our joy to trust Him. It is our sincere joy to follow Him. Yes, I do choose to follow Jesus. With my whole heart, I choose to follow Jesus but ultimately not because of anything in me, but because of what God has done in my life. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. He is the sustainer every moment of my faith. If God were to take His grace off of me for even a millisecond, my faith would shrivel up and die. But He will never do that. He who began this good work in me will be faithful to bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And that's true for every believer in this room. On that day, it will be our joy to give all the glory to God. In heaven, it will be our thrill to give all the glory to God, for it is rightfully His and wonderfully His. So dear Christian, here is the great event which occurred in your lifetime that resulted in your salvation. You were born again by the Spirit of God. You were regenerated. You were made new. You were given spiritual life. And it's not something you designed. It's not something you orchestrated. It's not something you had any control over. When the God who reigns over all decided that now was the time to make you his own, Jesus Christ sent his spirit upon you in connection with the the gospel. So maybe you were listening to a song on the radio. Maybe you were reading your Bible. Maybe you were, somehow the gospel was present and the spirit used it. And then you may have heard it a million times before. That time, the lights came on and you felt your sin. And you felt your guilt. And you thought about Jesus. And suddenly he was sweet to you. Suddenly he was your only hope. And your refuge. And in your heart you ran to him. C.S. Lewis was riding in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle. They were going on a visit to the zoo. Lewis said when he got into that sidecar. 
He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, and he was not a Christian. By the time they arrived at the zoo, he believed. He said the Spirit had used the gospel truths that he was ruminating over in his mind, and by the time he arrived at the zoo, he had become a new creation in Christ. John Newton was in a terrible thunderstorm on a ship. He was crawling up a ladder to the deck when a shipmate behind him pushed him aside and and went up the ladder ahead of him only to be washed immediately overboard by a wave. It was that that the Spirit used to bring to mind all that Newton's mom had taught him when he was young and he broke his hard heart and it turned him to Jesus. Uh, Some of us were at Fort Caswell this weekend. My dad was working as a security guard at Fort Caswell, reading his Bible in the guard gate to pass the time. And God got a hold of him and never let him go. I was telling some students uh, yesterday, uh, it's, it's impossible for me to trace exactly what God did when in my life. But as a child, I went to the North Carolina State Fair and God used a bunch of clowns. A bunch of clowns acting out a gospel skit. Doesn't God have a sense of humor sometimes in the way he saves people? Some of us know in this room the exact day and minute when we were made new. Some of us, all we know is it was over over a period of time. That somewhere in this season of my life, God got a hold of me. But what matters is this, that we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have it, we know it's all of grace. I must be realistic. It is likely that there are some in this room who do not have real saving faith in their hearts. And maybe you're hearing this message and you're thinking, well, if the Spirit has to do the work, if the Spirit has to give me faith, then I guess I can't do anything. I'm out of luck. But you see, the Spirit, when He chooses to work, He works through us. Our wills, our actions, our attitudes. And here's what He calls us to do. He says, hear the word of God and believe. Now, if you come to faith, you will look back and you will realize it was the Spirit that made me believe. But that doesn't change the fact that right here, right now, God calls you, believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't try and clean yourself up. Don't try and make yourself ready to meet God. Come to Him as sinful and messed up and broken as you are. Jesus Christ loves sinners. He doesn't love us because of our sin. He loves us in spite of our sin. He loves us because of who He is. But no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is hope for you in Jesus Christ. Maybe to this day, you've been refusing to truly consider the gospel and believe. But maybe right now is the day that the God of heaven has appointed for you. Where the Spirit is working. Maybe right now you even sense He's working in your soul. And there's a a tug on your soul and you're feeling convicted. Believe. Surrender yourself to Jesus Christ. Trust on Him and Him alone for your salvation. Don't you want to be able to say, I am His and He is mine. It is well with my soul. Turn to Jesus and believe. And then you'll be able to profess with all of God's people. It is grace alone. Let's pray.